Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our Father, we've just sung it and sung it many times that we will trust and trust in you alone. We just pray now that you would work through the passage we're going to look at together from Matthew's Gospel uh, to bring that about, to bring about exactly that kind of trust that is in you alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please do sit down. If you're uh, sitting down, if you could be turning back to uh, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at the second half of that chapter, running from verse 19 to the end. Uh, in amongst the papers you have given on the way in, there's also a handout that you can use to make notes or uh, follow along with if you would like to do that. Now, a couple of months ago, I began this uh, series that we're going through at the moment on the Sermon on the Mount um, by saying that although that we, are, we are certainly a church family uh, full of people who recognize who Jesus is and who love him, uh, yet still we struggle. Still we, we struggle to, to be active in prayer and in service and in evangelism. And we began to look back then uh, about what it might be that's holding us back holding us back from putting what we profess about Jesus Christ uh, into practice. Uh, Well, tonight Jesus is going to help us in that still further because he's going to prompt us uh, to ask this question. Could it be that what's holding us back is our allegiance to and our dependence upon another God? You might say, that's just ridiculous. Who worships other gods today? But it was noticed uh, quite some time ago, that as the, the idols and false gods of the ancient world were, were swept away here in the West, it, it wasn't as if the worship of false gods ended at that time. Rather, it was much more that the idols and false gods of the past were subsumed or eaten up under one great idol. It was as if Satan had forged a fresh idol for us, Rather like uh, Sauron forging the one ring in the, uh, the Lord of the Rings. One idol to rule them all. One idol to find them. One idol to bring them all. And in the darkness bind them. And that idol is money. When I told someone last week I was going to be teaching on uh, Matthew chapter 6 and uh, all this teaching on not storing up treasure on earth, he said, Ha! Well, your church definitely needs to hear that. And I dare say we might hear that uh, sentiment uh, echoed many by many across the city. Yes, sock it to them. I can hear them kind of echoing, egging me on in the background. Uh, make those rich Christians in forward wriggle and squirm with conviction and guilt. Uh, well, let me reassure you that I don't want to, to make you feel falsely guilty this evening. I do want to be faithful to what God uh, says about money and wealth throughout the Bible. Uh, And money and wealth are not bad things in themselves. We need to keep remembering that as we're looking at this tonight. Uh, Used freely and uh, with thankfulness and with love and generosity in the service of God's purposes, they are a blessing, a great blessing. Nevertheless, we're going to see tonight that Jesus does want to get under our skin when it comes to money and wealth. In fact, Jesus makes it clear across his teaching that alongside persecution, money and wealth represent one of the key dangers 
facing his disciples. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in the parable of the sower, he's going to tell his disciples about uh, the seed which fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants to death. And Jesus explains that this represents the person who hears the word of the kingdom, but, quotes, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it fruitless. And so, listen very carefully tonight as Jesus teaches us on precisely those things. The deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life. And we're going to be listening, as we have been every week, as people caught up in Jesus' mission uh, to the world, not wanting to be held back in any way by those things. Uh, We're listening, as we've been thinking about over the last few weeks, as disciples who are now learning how to to keep salty, that is... uh, to be utterly dependent upon our Father alone, not sidetracked by these other things that might distract us. And as Paul was reminding us uh, last week, at the centre of that is prayer, which means that we listen as disciples who've been taught to pray. Chapter 6, verse 11, give us today our daily bread, and who want our whole lives to reflect and echo that dependence upon our Father And what I think we're basically going to hear Jesus say tonight is this. When it comes to your future security, when it comes to that that future that you're looking for, don't trust wealth. Trust your father. And so don't anxiously run after such things. Just keep running with him. And uh, we're simply going to split that in two this evening, beginning beginning in verses 19 through to 24. Don't trust wealth, trust your father. Don't trust wealth, trust your father. Now what we're going to see in these verses is that Jesus is going to warn us about three dangers. The the danger of being deceived, the danger of being snuffed out, and the danger of being enslaved. And the evil lie behind all these dangers is the same in each case. The evil lie is that wealth can guarantee you a secure life. That is the lie that we're going to be facing up to tonight. Don't fall for it, says Jesus. Don't fall for it, first of all, because wealth is deceptive. It's unreliable, while your father is utterly trustworthy. So follow the argument with me, uh, uh, reading from verse 19. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust and other kinds of pests destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Or where, we might add, the value of investments may go down as well as up, where inflation and low interest rates will erode your savings, where banks can crash and financial systems fail, or where your pension may wither away to absolutely nothing. And where we can certainly add that you will die and you can't take anything with you. But rather, says Jesus, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust or other pests do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where can we find this long-term security that we, we so desire? Well, you won't find it by accumulating wealth says Jesus. Don't be deceived. The only way to find long-term security for the future is by storing up treasure in heaven. 
And if we want to know what that means, if we want to know what it means to store up uh, treasure in heaven, which presumably you do want to know what that means, given it's so important. Well, as so often in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the answer lies back at the beginning of the sermon. It lies back in what we call the Beatitudes. Uh, so please uh, turn back to those uh, glorious promises which began the sermon. Back a few pages, chapter 5, verses 3 through to 10. And look with me here. And it's here that we find out, spelled out in detail for us, what it means to store up treasure in heaven. It's to be the kind of disciple described here, to do the kind of things described here. That's what it means to invest in heaven, in that future. And you can see that amongst those glorious promises there, the, the eventual return on that investment is simply enormous. There's the blessing, there's the reward of our Father's approval, both now and most especially in the future. There's being a part of the future kingdom of the heavens, and there's much else besides you can see through that. And it's all guaranteed, it's all guaranteed by the rock-solid promises of God. And with those promises in front of us, it all seems quite simple, doesn't it? It's quite a, a a simple decision for us to make. Imagine for a moment that you want to make an investment, uh, a financial investment, and, and you call me in as a, as a financial advisor. So I turn up in a, in a shiny suit, and I've got my uh, FSA approval card in my hand, and I present to you with two investment options. This is what we call the kingdom fund, I say. Uh, you have to be patient. It is that kind of fun. You know, so we're talking about the long term here. But this is an absolutely secure investment and it's got an extraordinary return. With this one, I don't have to warn you that the value of the investment may go down as well as up because it is just going to go up. And here's the other one I say. This is what we call the compost fund. You might get some sort of return in the short run, but if you invest in this one, what you invest in it will eventually completely rot away. It seems a very simple choice, doesn't it? But of course, in practice, in practice, it's a bit more difficult than that, isn't it? And I wonder if you can see the problem here. You see, as I was saying earlier, um, having money and wealth is not, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. Uh, so I can be deceived, I can, I, and I can deceive myself. I can claim to be believing the promises of God as they're spelled out for us here. Uh, but then someone asks about my money and my wealth and my possessions. And, you know, I'm a, a 21st century Christian living in Fullwood. So I do have money, wealth and possessions like pretty much everyone here tonight. But I can claim that although I have them, I'm not trusting in them. That's what I can claim. But the key question, of course, is, is that actually true? Am I being deceived by those things? Am I deceiving myself? Uh, Are you likewise being deceived or deceiving yourselves? I've been pondering this over the last week, uh, deeply aware that, that wealth is a very tricky thing. It's a very deceptive thing. And my heart, I know, is very easily deceived. And if you were to observe me closely over a week, say, you would probably come to agree with that. Uh, So let's imagine that's true. Imagine you can observe every moment, every purchase I made, 
every minute I spent on the internet, every magazine I read, the kind of adverts within that that I dwell on, spend a little more time on. What would you conclude from all that evidence? Well, to begin with, perhaps you probably say, what's all this stuff about coffee machines all the time? Bizarre. How could anyone care so much about coffee? And I suspect you'd have many more serious questions about where my treasure is being stored and what my heart is set on. But perhaps the best test for us to consider is to to, to think about our our reaction. If uh, if all our financial security were to to be taken away from us, to be, to remove, be removed from us. Uh, so imagine the, the loss of a job or the unexpectedly huge bill or, or another deeper financial crisis that puts everything in, in turmoil. How would we feel? How would we feel? Would we be able to say, like, uh, like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Would we be able to respond like that in faith? Or would we panic, the ground open up beneath us and swallow us up in despair? What kind of reaction would it be? Now, sometimes, of course, we do lose things, and our reaction to that will, will tell us something about where our hearts are set, whether it's on the things on earth or, or things in heaven. Now, let me give you a very trivial example of that. When we came back from Australia, we, we bought a car. And uh, actually, we spent more on that car than we had ever spent on a car before. And we were telling ourselves that, that, you know, it would be good if it could last a good long time. That that would be a prudent thing to do. That's the kind of reasoning we went through. But very soon afterwards, very soon afterwards, one of us, one of us, put a fairly substantial dent down one side of the car. I won't say which one of us it, it, it was, because she wouldn't appreciate that. <laughs> you know, there, there it was. There was the dent. It was a trivial thing, really. Uh, nothing structural. It was entirely cosmetic. But my reaction was not trivial. I was actually quite upset. And that told me something about myself, something about my heart. It's quite disturbing in a way. And my heart was set really on things that had no value rather than the things of heaven. So how can we loosen our grip on these things? Well, I think we begin, can begin by listening to what Jesus says next about what trusting in wealth will do to you. And the first is that trust in wealth of a security will snuff you out inside. This is back in chapter 6 again, if you could turn back to that if you're not there. Uh, Chapter 6 and verses 22 and 23. And uh, I will freely admit that these are for us, I think, as 21st uh, century readers, puzzling verses. Uh, They are puzzling. Uh, Until that is, we realize that uh, a number of times in the Bible, to have what's called a good eye, or a healthy eye, as Jesus says here in verse 22, is a way of talking about generosity. Uh, On the other hand, to have a bad eye... Uh, An unhealthy eye, as Jesus says here in verse 23, is to be stingy, to be hard-hearted with our possessions and our money. So I hope you can see that the contrast that Jesus is is making here, which would you rather be? Would you rather be the the person with the the good eye, 
sort of shining bright, warm with generosity. That sounds, that sounds a good kind of character to be, doesn't it? Or would you rather be the one with the bad eye, sort of sunk in on ourselves as we cling to our wealth like some sort of safety blanket? And Jesus surely wants us to think, who would want to be like that? Who would want eyes like that? Eyes which expose, if you like, an inner darkness which is somehow consumed and taken us over. It's a, it's a horrifying kind of image, really, in the end. But not only will trusting in wealth dim the light that lies inside us, trusting in it will also enslave you, says Jesus. This is verse 24, which we had uh, Uh, read to us earlier. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you can see the contrast now. It's between two masters, God and money. The word money there is literally mammon. It's an Aramaic word for wealth. It was used uh, for the Syrian god of riches. This is money as an idol. Money, of course, can be used to serve God, but when it's not, it becomes a petty little god of its own with an agenda that's entirely opposed to the true God. And as Jesus reminds us, if you have uh, one master who wants one thing and another master who wants something opposed to it, then you are in an impossible situation, aren't you? You simply cannot please them both. And again, this is an imagery that should wake us up. Why should I be allowing myself to be dictated to by this petty little tyrant? Uh, you know, especially when it's corroding a precious relationship with my heavenly Father. And finally, uh, trusting and pursuing money, wealth, and possessions for security will, of course, lead us to a desperate anxiety and worry. And this is such a big danger, such a huge danger, and I think we can feel this, uh, that Jesus spends the the whole of verses uh, 25 to 34 on it in our passage. Don't trust wealth, he's saying, trust your father. And so, and this is the second half of what we're going to look at this evening, don't anxiously run after such things. Instead, run after him. Don't anxiously run after such things. Run after him. Now, we'd be hard-pressed, I think, to to miss the big emphasis of these verses because it's repeated prominently no no less than three times. It's, I hope you can see there in verse 25, don't worry, it's there in verse 25 at the beginning. Verse 31 in the middle. Verse 34 at the end, spanning The whole passage, Jesus is emphasizing what we need to avoid. We need to avoid this kind of worry. But then we also get from Jesus what we should be doing instead. Don't worry, says Jesus, running after food and clothing like the pagans, verse 32, but rather, verse 33, seek as first priority the kingdom. So what kind of worry is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think we can safely say that Jesus isn't encouraging us to be sort of, you know, dozy airheads, carefree, unconcerned about everything going on around us. Rather, he's got a, a very specific kind of anxiety in mind, and you can see it there in verse 25. This is specifically, do not worry about what you need to live and survive, about what you'll eat and drink, about what you'll wear. This is, 
an anxiety about our our future long-term security, about what we need to live. So why as God's children should we not worry about these things? Well, we'll find here that Jesus gives us very, two very compelling reasons. And the first is in verses 26 through to 30. And it's this. Do not worry because your father is creator and your worry is impotent. That is, every well-fed bird, every flowering plant is a testimony and reminder that our father is the sovereign creator with the power to support and sustain everything and anything in his creation. Just look at the birds of the air, says Jesus. They don't work away storing things up in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Perhaps we should follow John Stott's lead and spend more time watching the birds. Or see how the flowers in the field grow, says Jesus. They don't labor or spin, yet not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like that. Perhaps we should think about that next time we pass a well-tended garden or a flower shop. But not only is sovereign creator, is God able to provide, says Jesus. As your father who cares for you, he is willing to do that. As his children, his children, are we not much more valuable than the birds? If he clothes the plants of the field which are here today and gone tomorrow, says Jesus, will he not much more clothe his children? The answer is yes, by the way. And compared to all that, says Jesus, your worry is nothing. It's impotent. It can do nothing. Verse 27, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Or perhaps better would be what's there in in the footnote. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single cubit to your height? It's a very simple argument, isn't it? God can provide, and as your Father who cares for you is willing to provide, whereas your worry cannot provide. Uh, no matter how hard you kind of push it or try. Uh, Our son Samuel, uh, for example, is currently worried that he is noticeably shorter than his twin sister. That is a big worry for him. And his sister isn't helping him. (laughs) I see them standing, uh, standing next to him kind of more often than she used to. But, you know, he could worry all day and all night, and he will not add a single centimeter to his height. It's common sense. In fact, the only thing stopping us thinking straight on these things, says Jesus, this is verse 30, is it, is, it, is our little faith. If only we would simply trust our Father, trust his power and care, then there would be no need to worry. The second reason not to worry is in verses 31 through to 34. Don't worry because your father is all-knowing and your worry is ignorant. Verse 31, so do not worry, says Jesus, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. In verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble or enough evil of its own. And look at that key verse, verse 32 in the middle there. Our Father knows what we need. 
Again, it should be very simple, shouldn't it? If our Father knows what we need, then he will give us what we need. And again, next to our worry, there's no comparison here. You see, in our worry, we think we know what we need. That's what the worry is all about. But our Father knows what we really need. In our worry, we think we know what we will need tomorrow in the future. But tomorrow is beyond us, says Jesus. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Whereas our our Father's knowledge extends deep into the future, which is profoundly under his sovereign control. And so every day we do not worry, but we pray in faith to our Father, as we were learning last week. Give us today our daily bread. And we pray for the grace that's fresh every morning to deal with the troubles and evil of the day ahead. The key of not worrying is a daily faith. It's trusting our Father. Now, I can imagine that you might well say, uh, perhaps slightly in desperation at this point, yes, I know all that. You see, we know all this, don't we? But how? How how can we do this? How can we trust him more? Well, look again at what Jesus says in verses 32 and 33. The pagans run after these things in their worries, says Jesus. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now meditate with me for a moment on that contrast. Dwell on what it looks like, on the one hand, to be consumed with worry, like one of these pagans. Jesus has already shown us earlier in the sermon, the ungodly Gentile or or, or pagan, unable to love, unable to trust, frantic in futile prayer. Uh, And he's adding to that pitiable picture, this, this deep anxiety about daily living and survival. So that's on the one hand. Contrast that with the one who is not consumed by running after survival, but rather running with the sovereign creator of the world, safe in his father's hands, seeking the kingdom. And to press home what that really means still further, what that really looks like, I want us to turn back one last time, one last time tonight. Uh, to the Beatitudes at the beginning of the sermon to do that one last time before we finish. Because when Jesus uses here in chapter 6, verse 33, that the language of kingdom and righteousness, that, that's all, almost certainly what he wants us to do because those are, the, those are the terms, that's the language of the Beatitudes. So chapter 5, verses 3 to 10, one last time this evening, the promises of the kingdom verses 3 and 10, to those who hunger and thirst to be openly righteous in Jesus' name. How does this help us in the battle against anxiety? Four ways, I think. First, the Beatitudes remind us again in detail what it actually means to do what Jesus tells us to do, to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It means to pretty much the same as the storing up in treasure in heaven that we looked at earlier. It means to, to seek to be this kind of disciple. Humble, utterly dependent before God, eager to serve his will and purpose in the world, even if that means trouble and persecution. 
Second, when we see the enormous depth of these promises again, it should help us to understand the depth of our Father's care for us and his commitment to us. It should help us understand Jesus' assurance in chapter 6 that we do not need to run after things like food and clothing. Well, of course, with these promises in front of us, we can see that if we need food and clothing to be this kind of disciple and to do that, serve in this kind of way, then of course our Father is going to provide them. Yeah, but I think um, the promises here should also help us to understand that the, the difficult cases, the exceptional cases. Uh, you see, there are, of course, exceptional cases where God does not provide food or clothing for his children. There, there are situations where Christians do starve to death. It has happened. But look at um, chapter 5, verse 10. With me, for example, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. What is a disciple facing that kind of persecution on behalf of Jesus? What do, what do they need? What do they need? And I hope we can see that there, there may well be situations where at that moment, the thing that they need is not food. It's not clothing. Rather, it's the grace to persevere in faith despite the hunger, despite the exposure. And there are many Christians who have been through hunger and uh, near starvation who will nonetheless be able to testify to their father's love and care. Third, the Beatitudes show us how to deal with our little faith. You see, many of us tonight... uh, will and should come away from this, this passage that we've been looking at in Matthew 6, de- feeling deeply convicted. You know, feeling deeply convicted about how our faith in God has indeed been compromised by our trust in wealth and money and possessions. Well, if we are so convicted, then these are the promises to come back to. This is where to come back to. If we humble ourselves before him, then Jesus will serve us uh, for the forgiveness of our sins. And then fourthly and finally, having rediscovered our identity as uh, humble but forgiven sinners, the Beatitudes will then help us to stop saying, if only, if only. Those words are very telling, aren't they? The words, if only. When we say them, we reveal that we, we think that we are being held back in some, in some way. If only we had just had a, a little more un- income, we might say, then we could relax if only I could get my career sorted, then I, at last I could be, you know, put some bit of effort into being a good Christian disciple. If only that were true. If only here at Forward we could get hold of a decent uh, commercial espresso machine. Think how the, the training in Forward would improve and broaden and deepen. If, it, if only we had this resource or that resource. Just think what we could do in terms of evangelism and mission. But the promises of the Beatitudes show us just how committed our Father is to the task that he has given us. In our passage tonight, Jesus says, Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And if he knows what we need, we can trust him to give us what we need. And never say, if only, ever again. And I want to finish tonight on that very, very amazing truth from our passage that our Father knows what we need. 
See, I suppose we could uh, summarise the deceptiveness of wealth like this. It, it, it speaks, it says to us, it lies to us. You need me. That's what wealth is trying to say. And believing that lie is what turns wealth and money in, into a false god or, or an idol. So what turns it into, into the one idol to rule them all, the one idol to find them, the one idol to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. Now, you remember in the Lord of the Rings that they had to get rid of the one ring by taking a, a, an extremely arduous journey to Mordor and then dropping it in a, in a volcano. Uh, why they didn't get one of those giant eagles to just fly them there, I don't really know. It would have said an awful lot of hassle, wouldn't it? But thankfully, we can destroy the one idol, the one idol of wealth, much more straightforwardly than that. It is... It's just a matter of faith. On the one hand, on the one side, the idol of wealth is saying to us, you need me. But it only has power over us in in as much as we believe it. In as much as we believe that. On the other, Jesus tells us, your father knows what you need. He knows what you need. Those are the two choices. The idol saying, you need me. Jesus saying, Your father knows what you need. In the end, it does come down to a simple choice between those two claims. Will we trust in the uh, inanimate and impersonal stuff? Or will we trust in him? Now, of course, while that's uh, straightforward, it's still difficult. Uh, But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. By following Jesus, by listening to what he says... We can do the right thing. So let's pray for that now. Our Father, our Father in heaven, we want to pray now as your children for the glory of your name. Caught up in your plans and purposes, with our eyes fixed on your kingdom. And in our weakness and little faith, we want to plead for your help. To plead for your help in trusting you. To plead for your help in depending upon you utterly and exclusively. To the exclusion of all else. And to do that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.